Welcome back, everybody, to the Thrive Co-Living YouTube podcast. Quite a mouthful every time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have today with us Alan Tremarco, uh, who is a consultant, um, and she'll talk more about her background and what she currently does. But we're generally going to talk about the process, the decision-making process of consensus today. Um, I suspect that a lot of people and most of our viewers and listeners know generally what consensus is, but I bet they don't know the details of it. And it's very similar. Um, I think some of the audience knows that I was a mediator for mm-hmm. a long time. And people generally sort of knew what mediation was, but there's a lot of confusion between mediation and arbitration. And uh, so uh, we'll we'll talk about it, and it, it has some unique qualities as a decision-making process. So glad to have you on. And, Thanks for having me. And why don't you talk about, uh, in any order you wish, your background um, and what you're currently doing now. Sure. Well, thanks again for having me. Again, my name is Allison Tremarco, and I own a boutique consulting firm called Creative Capacity Consulting. We're based actually in central New Jersey, um, but we work mostly with nonprofits, all uh, primarily up and down the East Coast, but sometimes in other places as well, on um, strategic planning, on solid decision making, on um, group relationships between board and staff members, and on um, connecting to the community and making sure that the whole community is engaged in a nonprofit's work. Um, My background before I came to consulting, this is something that we have in common, Mark, is that I actually started my career in the live theater industry, uh, not as a performer, but as a stage manager, sort of running the the backstage of live theater productions. Uh, And after a few years, a lot of consensus building involved in that work, as you might imagine, um, because theater productions are always big teams. After doing that for a few years, I went and got my master's in arts management, and then I started working in nonprofit arts organizations in a variety of roles, sometimes in public relations, sometimes in program development, sometimes as the executive director. Um, And through all of that, I built up a whole bunch of skills about how to help people work together in community. And that's what led me to my consulting practice about, well, next year will be our 20th year in business. We started in 2002. Wonderful. You hardly look old enough to be to have been in business for 20 years. Thank you. It's 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 the zoom lighting. If you saw me in person, you'd see my you know <laughs> pandemic bags under my eyes, just like everybody else. <laughs> well, good. Um, OK, so let's talk about consensus mm-hmm. and uh, how about starting with a working definition, not a dictionary definition and talk about some of the unique qualities of of that decision making process. Sure. So consensus is a word, as you said, that gets thrown around a lot. But, you know, different people do have different understandings of what it means. Um, Probably the best definition I can come up with is the idea of consensus as a decision making process where um, a group agrees to work together to make the best decision for the community, whatever that community might be. It is um, kind of the, maybe not the polar opposite, but it's not really in line with often how we think about decision making. So, you know, here in America, decision making processes are often rooted in majority rules, right? The idea of voting. Um, and so the way decision gets made, decisions get made are often, um, where people take strong positions and kind of dig in their heels and try to get their way. And consensus is really about a group agreeing to listen to each other for understanding with the idea that something that somebody might say might change your mind uh, and get us all to a place where we feel um, that a decision that's in the best interest of, of the community can be made. Um, You know, we are thinking about, depending on the size of the Thrive communities, Mm -hmm. uh, of either 50 units or 100 units. Mm. And depending on the physical structure, we would like to have uh, 
quadrants and community kitchens, which would be the hub of that quadrant, um, being in each one of the corners mm-hmm. in, a, in a box. And my thought is that each of those quadrants, that sounds like a terrible name for it. I would hope we could come up with something else. We need else. a fancier, warmer yeah. sounding name for sure. Pod is a little too Star Trek-ish, but mm-hmm. anyway. So Work on it. Uh, we would divide between uh, f- them between four units mm-hmm. and hopefully to be able to arrive at consensus in each one of the units and then bring representatives together uh, to, to br- blend that together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, but first talk about how um, uh, one person, my understanding is that one person can stop the decision-making process. Um, talk a little bit about that, about because I, I don't think most people realize that. They just think it's everybody getting together and you just get there. Mm-hmm. But um, the formal, it's not really a formal process, but right. the process empowers one person to bring everything to a halt. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, one thing I really encourage groups to think about if they're going to use consensus is how they want to set their rules. I mean, you can decide, it's sort of the, I don't know, do I want to use the word classical consensus, right? The most traditional way of thinking about it. There is that uh, dramatic moment where one person says, "I, I can block the consensus, right? We can't go on because I don't agree with this. Um, and that can happen. But um, the first step in any consensus-based decision is actually to decide how much, sort of how much consensus we need. You know, not every decision that you're going to use to make, uh, use consensus to make is of such an important nature that you have to have like everybody 100% on board. Um, some people would say that the true definition of consensus, it's a little different than the one I gave us early in our conversation, is um, everybody who needed to say something has had the chance to say it and everybody has listened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there's, I don't know, there's 50 units in the building and so there's, you know, 12 or 13 of them in a quadrant, um, if one person in that group of 12 or 13 is unhappy with the decision, but the other 12 feel great about it, we can have decided in advance that that's okay in this decision. Mm-hmm. And in other decisions, we maybe we do need 100% commitment. So the first step of any consensus process is actually to set your decision-making rules mm-hmm. and be able to say, what, what level of commitment do we need from everybody to the decision for all of us to feel comfortable going ahead? Mm-hmm. I know in some situations, and actually it's quite common, that after a full discussion, one person will say, well, I don't feel good about it, um, but I'm not going to object and hold hold it hostage so that we can have consensus. I think it's called standing down. So mm-hmm. I'm going to, I don't feel good about it, but I'm standing down. I don't want to stay get in the way of consensus. And yeah, that's one tool that people often use. I, I, um, I often, so there's a couple of things going on here before we get to the point where a consensus really gets blocked. And so question number one for me is always, is the person who is unhappy with the decision and sort of has the feeling that they want to block the consensus, have we really heard from them? Because one of the things that's best about consensus is that if you do it right, it's a much more inclusive decision-making process. Um, I think this could be particularly important in co-living communities, right? There's nothing more important than feeling like you have a say in, in where you live. Um, and so it, uh, there is, if you do it correctly, there are checkpoints throughout the process that make sure that everybody is being heard. You know, I, I tend to say there are two kinds of people in the world people who need to think about something before they can talk about it and people who need to talk in order to figure out what they think about something. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And one is not better than the other. It's just a difference in human nature, right? So in one challenge of group decision-making is that um, in a traditional process, those people who talk in order to understand what they think, they're ready to talk right away, right? You put a question in front of the group and they are good to go because they're ready to talk. That's how they're going to figure this out. If you are a person who needs to think a little bit before you want to put an opinion on the table, those people often get lost in the conversation. And so um, it's not uncommon that someone comes forward to block a consensus because they haven't actually been heard. And the other people feel like, aren't we ready? And they were like, hey, I haven't really heard from me yet. Um, And while it's not uh, always driven by race or gender or age, the folks who feel left out of the conversation are most frequently people of color, um, women, or uh, younger people. And so it's important that you put a process in place, and I can talk about different ways of doing this, that make sure that people are heard during the discussion so that we don't really get to that block of consensus point, if you can avoid it. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of people, uh, similar to what you're talking about, love to talk and love to talk in groups. And the bigger the group, the more they like to talk. Right. And then there's that introvert type that, really does not like to talk, especially Mm -hmm. in a large group. Um, And that's why in uh, in my meditation group, not mediation, but meditation, Mm -hmm. um, there, we often break up into smaller groups. And that that helps that person feel more comfortable speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, And they usually do. What is you've done consensus and I want you to talk about some of your experience uh, with providing it, but what kind of order speaking order do you recommend? I know Mm -hmm. it will depend on certain factors, but, um, and is there a a rule that says that everybody gets a chance to speak before that talker gets a chance to speak twice or three times or Mm -hmm. whatever? What what kind of order, speaking order, do you like? It's a great question. So I am I am first and foremost a huge proponent of what some people call brain writing, which is when you pose a question to a group and nobody talks at first, right? Everybody's got a piece of paper and a pencil. And so the first task of the group is for each person to just sit with their thoughts for a minute okay. and take a few notes. What do I think about this question? Um, And then as a facilitator, I often say to people, okay, look at the list of brainstorming that you just did for yourself and pick the thing, the single thing that feels most important to you about what you learned from from thinking about this. Because we're gonna go around and we're each only gonna share one idea in this first round. Um, And then depending on how well I know the group, Um, I do often like to start with someone, not someone super introverted, right? Because they're unhappy to be called on first out of the gate. Um, But don't start with someone who has a lot of expressed power. You know, if you're in a, a, at a board of directors meeting, don't ask the board chair to talk first. Mm -hmm. You know, don't ask the executive director to talk first. Pick someone who is um, kind of a friendly presence in the room. And then if you're all, you know, if it's not COVID and you're all together in the space, set up an order that is common for your group, whether it just sort of passes to the right or, you know, but don't, um, but set an order so that people each share one idea, round robin it all the way around um, so that everybody gets the chance to say something. And then ideally, the facilitator is taking those ideas and I to do. There are definitely people who think consensus can happen unfacilitated. I have not seen huge success with that. Right. So I recommend that you have some sort of facilitator in a co-living community. I think I would recommend that that's a job that passes between people. I don't think you want somebody who does it all the time because it starts to invest them with power they haven't even asked for. Right. Mm Maybe it's a job that um, passes from person to person every meeting or something like that. Uh, And the facilitator is capturing ideas. If you're in a group 
together, I cannot overstress the importance of flip charts and whiteboards, right? Because visual thinkers are really helped by that, that we have all the ideas on the board. Um, and it's the job of the facilitator to help the group draw connections from what's been shared. Mm -hmm. It's as opposed to, um, you want to put structure on the conversation. So it's not so much that people who want to talk aren't getting to talk. It's that the talking is happening in a forward moving way, mm -hmm. right? If there's six, there's 12 people in the meeting and four ideas have come up frequently, let's look at each of those four ideas next, as opposed to just letting Jim or Alice talk about whatever they want, mm -hmm. right? You want to guide the conversation towards that sense that we do have places of agreement and we should be building from those. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um so in that initial request for them to write down their thoughts mm -hmm. and then prioritize the top one mm -hmm. um do you do you make sure that each person gives a different one so if person a mm -hmm. has given this topic and to person c that is the most important topic do they get to share their view of the same topic? A lot of times, especially if I have mediated in big groups, mm -hmm. I will ask them to check it off the list if it's been mentioned, because then if not, especially if they're not many issues or factors, because then you get somebody go, you spend a lot of energy with the next person saying, well, I feel very similar to right. Jennifer and right. and you you know and, and that's their strong issue or strongly felt issue what what do you like about doing that dealing with that I would agree I think generally um, in most cases you want to give the group the instruction that you know whoever says it first then y you've ranked some of your ideas occasionally people who are sort of at the end of the round robin depending on how big the group is um, feel a little tapped, like maybe everything they wanted to share has been shared. Mm -hmm. um, but in that case, I think if a, if a group is large enough that that's likely to happen, um, your point about breaking into smaller groups can also be a way to use consensus that if you've got a really big group starting in groups of three or four and asking folks to build consensus in that, that smaller group mm -hmm. and sort of bring us their best idea from the group of four and see uh, see how much alignment there is in what the smaller groups bring back. That's another way to make sure people are engaged, mm -hmm. um, but not, as you say, waste too much time sort of meandering. Because I think groups have, there's a certain limited amount of energy mm -hmm. that a group has per session. Yep. And once you, and, and somebody who's repeating themselves or taking up too much of the floor or that they really consume the group's energy. Um, yeah. So what do you do second round? Okay, so first round, let's talk about our most important things, mm -hmm. uh, issues, factors. And so what happens next? So depending on the question, there might be different solutions being proposed or different ideas being proposed. Um, and again, here's the, the job of the facilitator is to really start to shape the possibilities for the group. Mm -hmm. um, and say, well, so one solution that I see is we could do XYZ um, or we could do ABC. Let's talk now about the relative value of those two ideas, right? You're, you're sort of bringing, you're not just letting people talk randomly. You really are structuring the conversation. Okay. Um, and I often encourage groups to set a rule at the same time they're setting that decision rule to set a rule um, about how they will agree with each other. So that we don't get a lot of like, yes, Mark, you wanted to say something? Well, I just want to say that I agree with Allison, right? There's, there's a, you have to agree as a group that when Allison's talking, if you feel a strong agreement, you can sort of just go, yeah, like, or so I still have groups that go straight back to the sixties, right? So a little snapping, <laughs> like whatever it is that makes you feel like that, that thing that's inside you that wants to come out and say your piece sort of has been said without, um, running the meeting in a circle. Um, and that's when the the other uh, way that we deal with that 
is the sort of method of five five fingered consensus. Um, and this you have to set up with the group in advance as well. And essentially the process goes like this. Periodically when the facilitator feels like there's a, an idea that has gained some momentum, you have to state the idea really clearly so that everybody knows what you're talking about. And then you ask people to give you their current feeling about it. And for folks for whom um, this is their preferred idea, they feel great about it, they would hold up one finger. And everybody's got to do it, right? This is part of the group agreement, is that when, when the facilitator says, I got to see where you are right now, you have to comply. So one finger means, I love this idea. Two fingers means, I'm OK with this idea. It might not be my preferred idea, but I'm OK with it. It's OK. Three fingers means, I have a big question about this idea or something that I feel like I could add that would make it better. Four means, I do not like this idea, but I'm not, this is not the hill that I'm willing to die on either. You know, if other people feel good about this, whatever. And five is that, you know, I cannot agree with this idea, right? In your, in your traditional question from earlier, like five would be people who want to block the consensus. Mm -hmm. And so it, first of all, it makes sure that there's nobody lurking in the group who doesn't feel good about the idea, but just hasn't said it yet. Right, because the other rule of this process is that if someone's holding up four or five fingers, the facilitator is going to call on you and say, so Mark, five fingers, tell me why you feel five fingers about this. And you have to try to answer, right? This is another agreement the group makes with itself. You can't say, it's just how I feel, or I just don't no, like it. No sandbagging. No sandbagging. You have to say, well, I don't like this idea because xyz mm -hmm. and that moves the group towards better understanding mm -hmm. right that might make somebody else go wait a minute you know i hadn't thought about that actually that is a problem you know and excuse me <coughs> maybe that is a problem maybe we need to think about it or um, i often in those situations also call on the people who are holding up one finger and say what about this idea makes this your preferred idea and if they say, well, it's because I think that it will really help us all, that, may, that sometimes makes some of the people who are four-ish go, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. So the process helps refine the folks at either end of the spectrum, and you're getting closer to a decision that people feel good about. But you have to draw that information out from people. Um, you can't, you can't, let one or two people control the conversation and then say, so is that okay with everybody? Okay, good. We have consensus moving on, right? Mm -hmm. You have to actually process it as a group. And, and give it some time for those slow, deliberative people mm -hmm. to let it sink in. Yep. What about time limits on the, the session? Yeah. You know, I could see how, you know, if you set it big enough, let's say it's a moderately important issue and you mm -hmm. say two hours, um, that's plenty of time. But then if it's going to drag out, you know, for three days right. then you're not wearing everybody down to uh, or you do, I guess you don't want it to feel people to feel any time pressure because that's going to increase the intensity and uh, all that. So what, what are your thoughts about setting time parameters? Would you ever do it? Yes, for sure. And not necessarily like we have to make a decision. Um, but I think it's wise often to say we can talk about this issue for X number of minutes, hours, whatever. And then if we don't have consensus, we're going to step back from it and work on understanding why we have such strong opposing feelings. Mm -hmm. um, there's kind of a mental image, and I think it comes from, you know, um, I myself am not a Quaker, but I'm just outside Philadelphia, so I've worked with a lot of Quaker organizations in my time. Um, even they don't do consensus like this anymore, right? There's, there is a Quaker religious practice um, where people sit together and sort of wait until they feel led by God toward a decision they can all share. Um, they don't even call that consensus anymore. They call it sense of the meeting, um, mm -hmm. where 
people feel their shared faith lead them to a decision that feels right for everybody. Mm-hmm. Most groups, even a co-living group, isn't going to have that necessarily, right? Like religious faith is a really powerful thing. Um, and so you do want to put some limits on it. And uh, the group should set those limits. The challenge of um, the challenge of consensus in those situations is when there might be external time pressure. So it's not so much like we're not ready to make a decision, but something about our decision impacts a decision that is being driven by an outside timeline. Um, a and contract then, has to be signed for some service, whatever, or you lose the opportunity. Yeah, I get it. And so then you do, as a group, have to agree, what's our, what's our plan? I mean, something else to think about in these um, kinds of consensus-driven decisions is that, you know, uh, unless the group is organized really informally, in which case these issues won't come up, there's some group that holds the legal authority of any organization, right? Whether we it's a board or, you know, some other model. And we have to make sure that the, the group that holds that, that responsibility also has a reasonable amount of power. Um, this is a challenge in all shared living situations. I mean, I live in a, a neighborhood that has a homeowners association and everybody's experienced this, right? These like endless arguments about where the porch furniture can be left and what's an appropriate length of the grass. And you wonder a little bit sometimes like why we are all spending our lives talking about this. Um, and that's, you know, you have to at some point decide which decisions will just lay with a group that aims for consensus but can vote um, and which decisions are so important. And, you know, when I look at your model for these co-living communities, it almost feels to me sometimes like the decisions that are made in the quadrant, how we live, how we use our shared space, when it's quiet, when it's noisy, how we treat visitors, you know, those kinds of group decisions um, are almost more important to make in a consensus-based model than some of the um, sort of homeowner management decisions, which are business decisions. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I really, uh, I'm a utopian for one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but I think at this moment, I think that the board decisions, you know, a lot of them will be very important and very expensive. Um, You know, do we put on a new skin on the roof? Um, Lots of things. And my inclination at this moment would be to say that the board has responsibility, but the decisions, they can't execute a decision unless it's met a certain threshold with consensus. So I would like everything Mm-hmm. Um, to be decided that way. Uh, and I can see how it would be really difficult. And I think that people that want this type of lifestyle mm-hmm. that will br- bring strong personalities to this yeah. and will have artists and will have just all sorts of people. Uh, and, but I think one common denominator is that they're there'll be a lot of strong personalities. I think you're probably right. I mean, people would move into a co-living community, right? Because they enjoy people and enjoy interacting with people. And engagement. Mm -hmm. All right, here's one that just popped into my mind. What about the, you're not going to get 100% participation and attendance in every meeting, even in the most important meetings. Yep. There's going to be somebody absent. And I bet you that's the person with the strongest feeling about it, pro or con, mm-hmm. and leaving them out of it could torpedo everything because the next day at lunch or whenever, right. they're going to be campaigning. So, and and not to take their input um, I, is dangerous, I think. Well, this is a real challenge um, for the exact reason that you just mentioned. I think I would, 
I mean, there's there's a couple things going on here, right? So I think you're going to want a process by which people can choose to sort of opt out of decisions that they're willing to let, let the rest of the group make. Okay. Right. So, yeah, so that you could sort of say like, well, you know, everybody, if you want to say everybody gets a role in everything, um, but if you don't want to roll in this, you should opt out. So we know that it's just that not just that you're not here, but that you're good. We can handle this. Um, for more complex decisions, I think it's the thing about the process then is that it becomes slow, right? Some Mr. Whoever who cares a lot about this issue but had to work the night of the meeting and so couldn't come to it, that generates more meetings for people, right? Or the kids on the way, the parents are taking the kid to the emergency room. You know, they are, they're just going to be out. Yeah. Go ahead. And so I think you, the, the community itself will have to decide at what point um, they can make space for the reality that it's hard to all set a time to do things or when we agree to make a decision and live with it, even if you couldn't come, even if it's important to you, then, you know, we can't all be here all the time. And so we, we make a decision and we live with it. Um, you, you don't want any consensus-based process to be set up with decision-making rules that allow someone to hold it hostage so that they're continually getting their way. I mean, I have seen this. Um, the whole purpose behind consensus is that you don't dig into your position and try to like lobby for it. Um, you listen for understanding and you think about what's best for the group. Um, now, a lot of the things that are gonna come up in a co-living community are things about which smart people can disagree, right? That's what makes it hard. Smart people often can disagree about these things. So I think you will probably need some sort of structure and the community should set it up itself, right? This is its first decision is how we're gonna make decisions. Um, you know, at, at what level of impact do we have to make sure everybody participates? And are there alternate methods of participating besides sitting through these really, what can be longer meetings about some of these issues? Mm -hmm. One idea that came to me is that um, you could stagger the quadrant meetings. So maybe you have one on Monday, one on Wednesday, so that somebody who misses one could attend another one. Now, I think the people in each quadrant are going to know each other the best right. uh, within their own quadrant. But I think after maybe a year, everybody is going to for sure know the others by by their face. By sight, yeah. Um, but they're they're not going to know that person as well as they know other people in their quadrant. Mm -hmm. um, then another one is uh, another idea. I think <clears throat> is what a lot of groups are looking towards as they come out of COVID. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people have been vaccinated. Some people feel comfortable going into a physical meeting, others not so much. Mm -hmm. And I've actually discovered, and this may help you with some of your groups, a webcam that is on a an axis and the camera can spin 360 by voice activation. Now I hear that the audio isn't that great for that mm -hmm. particular tool, but that the video is really good and it and it picks up. So you could have a, a physical meeting with people sitting in a circle, mm -hmm. uh, probably would be best. And then those that can, you know, they're not on the way to the hospital, but they're sick and uh, right. they could attend in Zoom mm -hmm. and have a good combination of that. I guess you'd have everybody up on the screen somehow. Mm -hmm. But so I think that's a possibility for people that just can't get there, but they they are available in there in a different way. Place. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that will come out of this extended pandemic period is that video conferencing generally um, may be something that persists for us um, and the technology will keep up with that. Uh, prior to the pandemic, the only time I had ever been in a room 
where it seemed possible to have some people in a room and some people online was actually at a community college that had a very deliberately kitted out distance learning room with a camera that tracked people. And if someone was talking um, who was on video, it would sort of bring them forward in a big screen for everybody in the room to see. It was quite wonderful. Um, and I, you know, I think as time goes on and we do get back to more in-person meetings, we may see some of that technology be more um, widespread and come down in cost and come up in quality as it often does. And I think that will definitely help with some of these situations. Mm -hmm. And I have some meetings that I attend that I think will never, never go, go back, back to physical meetings. Um, I've seen groups broaden geographically mm -hmm. in all sorts of ways. Uh, and as an introvert, I love it. So yeah. I would prefer, I would prefer, I miss some hugs, yeah. but otherwise I'm, I'm really happy to work out of my home. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about some of your experiences, uh, not disclosing anything sure. that would tip us off on who they were. Um, a major theater company in central <laughs> New Jersey. Right, um, no. So... Tell us about some of the things that you've seen, uh, that you've experienced as a facilitator, mm -hmm. uh, maybe in some groups that you've been involved in that you weren't the facilitator. Um, what What are some of the examples? So I, I feel like one thing I've learned over the years in many different situations is that groups, um, even groups that on the face of it want to reject structure Right? They're like, oh, we're all about the collective. We'll just talk it out. If you're dealing with a really serious issue, what they want is structure. That's what solves the problem for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm thinking of a group that was actually a um, sort of a networking group, a series of, I think there were eight of them, smaller nonprofits spread around a state. And um, the statewide networking group was supposed to be a forum in which they could um, share resources and maybe do some larger scale things together. And they kept having these meetings where um, differences in opinion were starting to come out in a way that people were sort of taking it personally, right? There was some, because this is one thing that happens in groups that's really challenging, right? If you don't manage your decision-making well, um, people's feelings get hurt. Uh, legitimately, people's feelings get hurt. People start to feel insulted. Um, to give you an example, there was a one member of this eight-member networking group who tended to be very quiet during meetings, but then would show up to shared events or shared programs and sort of not follow the agreed-upon process for whatever was supposed to happen. She would just do whatever she wanted. Um, I know, and it, like we laugh about it now, but um, often the host of the event had put, you know, hours and hours and hours into setting up something a specific way. There had been five meetings and six Google Docs and a schedule, and, you know, she was in theory part of this collective, but in practice was just doing whatever she wanted and was plugging in when it was good for her, but not putting much in. She was really only taking things out. And so... Um, any collective activity, there are always, I mean, I'll tell you right now, your first problem is going to be people perceiving different levels of investment from different people involved and what that looks like and how much um, power their voice is going to have even in a collective decision-making process. So um, I worked with them to set some decision-making rules. Uh, we used the five-finger consensus process that um, was meant not only to draw out people's concerns in the meeting, but also to kind of remind everybody that actually we were all agreeing. We're agreeing right now. You're agreeing to this. And so um, we've agreed that this is the process or this is the rule or this is the most important thing. Um, and cementing that can often only happen through a structured process when people don't have good trust with each other. So Ill, Ill use of consensus, sort of lazy consensus, people not participating with their full faith, ultimately leads to broken trust, right? Good consensus lets you understand the members of your group better, what they care about, um, how they operate, and it leads to better group trust. But if you do it in sort of a lackadaisical way, it actually hurts relationships. 
Um, so I think that's really important. I learned a lot from working with that group that their efforts to be flexible and unstructured were actually what was killing them. The minute they made like decision rules and said, well, we're going to work towards consensus. And in these decisions, this is what consensus looks like. And in this decision, then someone could block a consensus. They felt a lot more confident in each other. Mm -hmm. um, and you want consensus to give members of a group confidence in each other, right? That if we mm -hmm. all agree to this, we're all going to hold that up, mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. Hmm. It's a um, very much a trust-based process. Mm -hmm. um, some other examples? Mm. I would say um, another th sort of thing to be wary of is when you're trying to um, use consensus to reconcile like really deep-seated disagreements about the purpose or the values of a group. Um, consensus is probably the best way to go there, so I'm not discouraging people from using consensus, but those are the meetings that go on longer than anybody wants or um, where you get folks in a position where they, they agree not to block a consensus, but they don't feel good about what's happened. And so um, you get what I sometimes call malicious compliance, right? And that's where you get sort of uh, the absolute bare minimum of compliance so that people feel like they can say, oh, but I blah, 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 but they haven't actually complied with the spirit of whatever was decided. Um, thinking about a little nonprofit newspaper that I worked with at one point and they were having some sort of values issues about how they worked together and who was respected and who wasn't and that kind of thing that we were trying to resolve through a series of consensus-based sort of work rules and workplace practices. Um, and one of them had to do with moot because it's a newspaper, right? It's publishing activity. So things move from one piece in the process to the next in, a, in an orderly and timely fashion. Um, and we made some sort of rule about handing things off more clearly, right? That when you finished your piece of work, you'll hand it to the next person who has to work with it. Um, and they had one staff member who really felt unseen in this whole process in spite of um, efforts to help him be seen. And he continued going forward. He would like take a piece of completed work and leave it on someone's chair as opposed to handing it to them and so he would do things like leave it on someone's chair, even if that person was out uh, on vacation this week. And people would be sitting around waiting for the work to come and he would just go home. And then he would be like, but I left it on Mark's chair. I didn't know Mark was on vacation this week, even though Mark's like computers off and his chairs pushed in and, you know, that's that's malicious compliance. And so mm -hmm. you have to be careful when you're using consensus that you don't build a rule that people are agreeing to and not actually intending to carry out in the mm -hmm. depths of their heart. Um, in a workplace, you have supervisors who can um, follow up with people and talk with folks about their implementation of the consensus. In a more shared space, like a co-living community, you, you know, if you have completely shared leadership, you have to decide how you will approach community members who maybe aren't living up to the spirit of a consensus, mm -hmm. even though they might technically be doing whatever the rule says, you know, what is it about it that's disruptive to our group? Mm -hmm. And if they don't really agree with it, they're just not wanting to object, then they will be the ones at community lunches, dinners that are trying to subvert you know and undermine and whatever they have to do if they feel strongly about the issue right so that's so, terrible it, well it's important it's important to get to those folks you know because they do there is a personality type that struggles with consensus because they um you know one of the most um sort of revelatory experiences of my career was when i was a relatively young executive director uh, and I was actually, we had a fairly flat organizational hierarchy. I was technically the executive director, but we did a lot of shared decision making. Um, all the board meetings were completely open and members who were not on the board would come all the time and participate in conversations, uh, even though the board had to sort of hold authority in the end. And um, 
we had a board member who was just a troublesome guy. We felt like he was always stirring the pot. He was always getting people upset. He was always criticizing people. Whenever a decision got made, he was always the one who would block the consensus at the last moment. Um, and I didn't know a lot about consensus yet, right? So I, I didn't know how to head him off at the pass and bring him into the process yet. Um, and I didn't realize in one particularly thorny meeting, after I had already resigned, but I hadn't left yet, he said, you know, this is a good meeting. There's a lot of conflict. And if there's not conflict, nothing's happening. And I was so like taken aback that I could have worked with this guy for years and not understood that his whole understanding of progress was like argument. That mm -hmm. if we weren't arguing, we weren't actually talking it out. Like mm -hmm. if tempers weren't flaring, then we couldn't possibly be reaching consensus. Mm -hmm. And so you have to understand people's personalities a little bit. Um, and, and the group gets a character to it over yeah. time. Oh, yeah, definitely a personality. Mm -hmm. um, what about pulling? Let's, let's say you try to reach consensus. Um, you've, you're at the end of your time mm -hmm. frame. You've got one person that's really hanging on mm -hmm. uh, to opposition. Mm -hmm. What about in between the, that meeting and the next meeting, the facilitator pulls them aside mm -hmm. because a lot of it may be that they're not feeling heard. There's mm -hmm. something there uh, in, a, in mediation. This is referred to as a caucus, but right. there's, a, there's a level of trust that's lost whenever you meet with any individuals or group of individuals. Right. So, can you do that to help somebody feel heard without the rest of the group feeling betrayed? Yeah. So how neutral is the facilitator is a really good question. Um, and in a business setting, the facilitator is often neutral, right? They're not that different from a mediator. There's someone who's been brought in from the outside who doesn't have a stake in what happens. Um, and so they are neutral. I often tell people like, I'm here, I'm Switzerland. I have no stake in what happens next, right? Anybody mm -hmm. can talk to me. I don't repeat it to other people. Um, but in a living community, particularly if you're taking turns being the facilitator, right? Everybody's got a stake, sometimes a pretty high stake. So um, the group has to kind of set their beliefs about what to do. If you've had a discussion about something and you're coming to the close of the conversation without a consensus being reached, the last step in that conversation then is to say, what are our options for getting to consensus? What do we need to do? Is there something we need to learn? Is there something we need to go away and think about? Um, is, does a small group, do two of us, want to agree to sit down with Mark this weekend and talk this through a little bit more and see what our options might be and bring a bring something else back to the group. So I would say in a situation like that where everybody's got such skin in the game, um, I would want the group to sort of agree on what the, the next step is, mm -hmm. which might be a caucus. Sometimes caucusing is what is necessary, right? Um, but I, I would want the group to agree as opposed to anything that would feel to other people like a, you know, back alley decision, right? Mm -hmm. Where a couple people go outside and make a decision. And when you start to do that too, you also bring up questions of equity, right? Who those people are who are making decisions when they go somewhere outside the space together or, you know, they all go to the same gym or they all work at the same place or whatever. And then you start to get that, um, well, if you really want to have any power in this quadrant, you have to also belong to whatever organization. And you don't want any of that. I mean, that's the antithesis right. of what you're reaching for there. Right. So. Two, two more thoughts mm -hmm. uh, that I'd like to share. One is, uh, and we're going to have a podcast with a therapist mm. um, pretty soon. And to discuss the, those different personality types that we know we're going to draw mm -hmm. and how to deal with them. And here are a couple of them. Um, the control freak mm -hmm. that has to be in control. Uh, and if they're not, they're not happy or center of attention. Uh, there's going to be the, uh, I think in 
it's in psychological terms, uh, or maybe not, the hungry ghost, the person that needs so much attention and yeah. they're just, you, you know who they are, you know? Um, so you've got all these different personality types that can really wreak havoc in a community like this. Yep. Um, true mental illness. You know, if you've got a bipolar person that's, you don't know how they're going to react and from one day to the other. Yep. Um, so navigating that, I think is going to be really difficult and predicting it is probably impossible. Mm -hmm. um, I thought about maybe having a psychologist on the interview committee. <laughs> and they well. go, uh, 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 no. Um, so that's going to be a sticky situation and something that really will impact the community mm -hmm. and could easily destroy it. If you've got two or three control freaks, I'm not trying to be uh, disrespectful just mm -hmm. by the type, but I think we all know know the type yeah. uh, and I'm sure there are others. So I think, and I'm, I'm not sure there's anything you and I can do about that, but I am interested in, in pursuing it and discussing it. By the way, we had uh, a ministerial couple. Mm. Uh, so ministers of different denominations that were married to each other. And they uh, were on the podcast about three or four months ago. And we had a great session on dealing with religion. How do we deal with wow. religion in yeah. this? So mm -hmm. I would invite you and anybody to tune in. I won't go, go down that rabbit hole. But the other thing that strikes me is that, you know, um, I definitely want to have, want to have a, um, a mediation component mm -hmm. where we train people that are interested in the community to mediate disputes between members. Mm -hmm. Maybe they would be in a different quadrant to bring in right. some neutrality uh, or comfort. Um, and then train those that really like mediation mm -hmm. to mediate disputes from the outside and have people bring in the community, mm -hmm. bring certain disputes to us as a mediation center and use it as a, as a revenue oh, uh, interesting. stream, sharing yeah. it probably 50, 50, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it could be a great part-time job for someone. Mm -hmm. um, and I've done a lot of that training. Uh, so one thing that strikes me here is that I think those issues that present themselves as disputes from the get-go probably are better suited for mediation and the decisions even though we will know ahead of time if there are going to be some disputes about it but the community decisions being done by um uh by consensus mm -hmm. because i see them and, and mediation has a really set strong strongly set structure yeah. um uh facts or agreeing on some ground rules the facts and everybody say, states the facts mm -hmm. um questions and response that each person directs to the other mm -hmm. um their feelings about it talking about the emotional component of the issue mm -hmm. and then working towards resolution so i see it and maybe that could be a structure that's used in the consensus model uh, for decision-making. I have used it in that situation. Yep. Um, but I, I definitely see two different approaches and that if we know it's a dispute, you know, Joe is too loud. Right. Mary has sensitive hearing. She's not sleeping at night, those sorts of things. Um, so, but I do see consensus as as truly important in in terms of community decision making um, and i think it's important to be transparent about that with folks if they're considering coming into the community mm -hmm. right i mean we everybody's got their things and so i think it's worth saying to folks who are considering coming into the community if you're the kind of person who really needs to get your way all the time 
it's probably not the community for you. Mm -hmm. Right. We're going to make consensus based rules. It means that some of them you won't like very much, potentially, mm -hmm. um, because some things that might be for the good of the community might be personally inconvenient for you or not the way we, you would set yourself up if you lived mm -hmm. in a detached house with an acre of land around you. So or even an apartment building right. where residents are interacting very little with each Minimally. other. Minimally, yeah. So I think it's okay to say a couple of things. You know, we think people who will really enjoy living here will be people who want to do things in a collaborative, consensus-based way, are okay living with a set of community rules that they help build, but they don't dictate. Because that's what consensus is, right? You build something together. You don't dictate what's happening. Um, and that you're willing to sort of balance your power with your responsibility mm -hmm. in the, as a member of the community. Yeah, definitely. Um, so have we left out anything that you can think of? Well, this, this has been a great, from yeah. my point of view, a great discussion and uh, lots of good ideas flowing around mm -hmm. here. Are we missing something, though? You know, I think the only thing that I would close on is a reminder that as we're all sort of reaching for a more inclusive way of being together that um, doesn't necessarily rely on the most standard practices that we're used to, um, consensus is a great tool for that, right? Working collectively is a way that does embrace people of different personalities, of different backgrounds. Um, and so when you, you know, if you're reaching for the idea that we can all live together in a really thriving way, um, I think consensus can be at the heart of building equity into the community. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that led me to this and the, the importance of it is that when I did mediation, mm -hmm. um, conducted a mediation, and even if it was just two people that came together, there are these mom moments where they're they're truly meeting, and there's an there's an energy that is created to propel if they've known each other, mm -hmm. or even divorcing couples. Um, there's some real power there, and it's almost I can all I can feel it. Yeah. Um, that moves them from that point, and I thought. You know, to to have that kind of energy um, and the transformation that comes from collective decision making, um, it can be so powerful and so enriching and the, the experience of going through that. So I really want that for for these communities. And I know everyone will be different. They'll, they'll each have their own personality and each mm -hmm. quadrant will have its own personality. Um, but I, I think, I think that we may be, that there's a certain percentage of the population that's ready for this. You know, there are definitely people that will, and, and right. I, I hear people say, well, it's a cool idea, but I would never want to live there. Yeah, you should do that. You should set up that community and move in. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, sure. But it. I, I think it can lead to some wonderful experiences. And the the main problem we're trying to solve is this epidemic of loneliness that that was in full bloom before COVID. And now after COVID, I think even people that didn't value community uh, or family mm -hmm. or sense of family, that there are going to be a lot more people who missed it so much that they want to have that experience so i think, I think so. the i think the draw to it will be even stronger uh coming out of this i hope so i hope so well thank you so much this has been a very rich conversation i really enjoyed it and, and truly appreciate you participating so give us give us some contact information sure anybody Again. that wants to reach out to you as a consultant whether they're a not-for-profit, they're a theatrical group, <laughs> they're a business, how can they reach you? Tell us about, tell us your website again and any other contact information that you want to give us. And we'll put this in the show notes. 
Terrific. I mean, probably the easiest way to get me is through my website, which is creativecapacity.net. The net is important, but um, I'm easily reached. You can also Google me. I'm the only Alison Tremarco out there. Wow. So. <laughs> I Google, Googled Mark Steins and there are quite a few of them. <laughs> quite a few of them. Yes. No, I'm lucky with my name, but yeah. uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. So thanks for letting me participate. Great to talk to you about these things. Great. And let's, let's stay connected and Maybe you can come facilitate a consensus uh, session one time. That would be awesome. I would love to. Or do some training for us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another great episode of the Thrive Co-Living Communities YouTube podcast. To learn more about our mission and how you can support our vision of creating co-living communities worldwide, please visit us at thrivecolivingcommunities.org. To receive advanced viewings of our podcast and other exclusive content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash thrivecolivingcommunities. You can also learn more ways to support our mission in the show notes below. Amazon Smile, GoFundMe, Kroger, and our own Thrive Gear store, where you can buy t-shirts, hats, and many other items. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll look forward to seeing you again soon.